Amen. Well, as we've gathered today, we want to look to our God, to see what He is like, and to delight in Him. One of the reasons this is so important, the, the biggest reason being that God is God and He's worthy of our worship, but one of the reasons this is so important for us as His creatures is that one of the great disorders of our lives is that the stuff around us, people, can loom large in our, in our gaze and in our eyes and in our lives. And we, we begin to fear our circumstances or people in our lives rather than God. And so to pause in our weeks and to reflect on the size and the character of our God reminds us that He is big and we are quite small. And though our problems loom large in our eyes, our God is far bigger. We need not fear. We can trust in Him. Psalm 64 is a psalm that reminds us to think these ways because David experiences his own time of fear. He's afraid. He's terrorized by his enemies and their attacks are working. He's scared. He may lose his life. He doesn't know what's coming. And it's interesting, in this psalm specifically, it's the attack of their words. You may have seen the metaphor there in Psalm 64, verse 3. They sharpen their tongue like a sword. So you can imagine a warrior on his you know, circular stone spinning around, sharpening the blade of his sword as he prepares for battle. And so too, they've prepared their words to hurt David. Or the second phrase of verse 3, they bend their bows, they prepare their bows, they tighten the strings, and they draw back the arrows as they prepare to shoot their bitter, slanderous, harsh words at David. Now, maybe you've heard the old catchy phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Catchy, but completely false. Words hurt. You've experienced that before. You've experienced how somebody can hurt you with their words, the things they say, the way they attack, the way they tear down with their words. And so it is a fearful thing to face the attack of someone else. But David, though he is gripped by fear, makes the right choice in Psalm 64. He turns to the Lord and through the course of the psalm, David, rather than fearing his enemies, begins to fear God again. He sees that his God is larger than it all. And by verse 10, he says, I will even be glad in the Lord. In the midst of the attacks of his enemies, he says he can even be glad in the Lord. So this is what we want to consider as we work through this psalm, that when we're threatened by enemy attacks, when we're threatened by the harsh words of others, fear the Lord and be glad. You can actually be in a place of gladness, even though under attack from those who want to do you harm, because God is bigger than it all. So let's consider together how it is that we fear the Lord and find our gladness in Him, even though we're gripped by fear, even though we're under the attack of the enemy. 
Let's gain a little context to Psalm 64. I want you to notice a couple things. This has a beautiful structure that doesn't stand out quite at first. We don't know exactly the context that David is in. It's not mentioned. It's just to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Being that it comes after Psalm 63, it's safe to assume it could have the same historical background as Psalm 63 when Absalom betrayed David and David fled to the wilderness of Judah for his life and thirsts for God in the dry wilderness. I think Psalm 64 has the same context because it focuses in on words. In fact, you notice references to what is said, what is spoken. You see it six times through this psalm. You might notice it in verse 2, their secret plots. Or verse 3, they use their tongue. Or verse 3 again, their bitter words. Or verse 5, they talk to one another. Or verse 5, again, they say, who will see us? Or verse 7, God will cause their tongues to harm themselves. So this has a lot to do with the way they're using their words. And sure enough, Absalom used propaganda and slander to tear David down and to turn the people of Israel against David and to be loyal to Absalom. Instead, it was an attack of words that led to fear for his life. So again, I think it fits what David is facing. But there's another interesting thread that weaves through this psalm, and it's the thread of fear. David is afraid in verse 1. In fact, it's interesting that he says to the Lord in verse 1, "...preserve my life from fear of the enemy." Not just the attacks and that I might lose my life, but protect me from even just being afraid of them. And so fear comes up in verse 1, and it returns in the theme again if you look at verse 4. It says there that these enemies shoot in secret at the blameless. They shoot at him and do not fear. They have no fear of God. They think they're not being seen. They think they can live how they want. They have no fear of God. They do what they please. They do not fear. And then the theme comes up once more in verse 9. After God's strength is shown in verse 9, we read that all men shall fear. They'll see the power of a just God and fear Him. So we begin with David being afraid of his enemies. They're not afraid. They do not fear God, but then God shows his power and all men fear God. And so we'll track with that fear throughout Psalm 64. One final thread to point out to you. It's not apparent in the English, though some of the translations try to reflect it a little bit. There's a word structure in the Hebrew. Hebrew words are made up usually of three consonants. And what can be done with those consonants is you can create similar sounds when you repeat those consonants. And there are three key words in this psalm that use similar consonants. And so when they're read in Hebrew, they sound like each other. And so there's a recurring sound. It happens at least six times in this psalm. And for... My poor Hebrew, it sounds something like yura, yura, yura. And it's the word shoot, fear, and see. Okay, and so think of this kind of like rhyming in English, right? And so if we were to use three English words uh, that were to rhyme, we might say there was fright, there was sight, and there was fight, okay? But 
David, or at least the New King James, translates it as these words, shoot, fear, and see. And those words create another thread throughout the psalm. Every time the listener would have sung those rhyming words or heard those rhyming words, it would have been kind of a a little reminder flag. Ah, listen up, something important is happening here. Because the shooting is what initially caused the fear in David's life. He saw that they were attacking him, and so he was afraid. So seeing the shooting leads to fear. But then, in the second section, the, uh, the enemies, they do the shooting, and they do not see that God is watching, and so they do not fear. And then in the final section, God actually does the shooting. All men see God's power and all people fear him. And so those three words with their rhyming come up through each section of this psalm. Kind of fun. I wanted to point it out to you. It's interesting things weaved into these beautiful psalms. So as we are threatened by enemy attacks, fear the Lord and be glad. We begin in the first two verses by sensing where David is at, that there are times when we are gripped by fear And we begin to fear the Lord by turning to Him, even though fear of man has gripped us. God may seem small in those moments, and people seem huge in our lives, that they're the ones with all the power, that their words and their actions could destroy me. And as people and their actions loom large in our lives, and we're gripped by that fear, that's the time to turn to the Lord. Even though he seems distant, he may seem, even seem small as we look at the enemies that loom large, but that's the time to turn to him, to look to him again. And that's exactly what David does in verses 1 and 2. So he calls upon God to hear him in verse 1. Not just hear, but, but respond. The New King James uses the word meditation, but lament or complaint is maybe a better word there. Hear my voice, O God, in my lament, in my complaint. He's facing this issue. He's afraid of his enemies, and he calls to God for help. He asks God to preserve his life. And then in verse 2, he asks God to hide him from their secret plots and from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. They're doing what's wrong. They're sinning against God. They're trying to keep it a secret. And David is afraid as a result of what they're doing. He may even lose his life. And this was indeed true with Absalom. Absalom had so convinced even one of David's closest counselors. He had so convinced the people to side with him, Absalom, that David's life was even at risk, that people would have attacked him and even killed him so Absalom could have the kingdom. And so he's gripped by this fear, yet he turns to the Lord. There are many times in our lives that we are gripped by fear. I was thinking about that picture of being gripped by something and it reminded me of a time when I invited some friends to, uh, to go with me to Chicago to see the city. And at the time, my friend had uh, uh, three small children, they're, they're much older now, but uh, the middle child was about the right age to, to ride on someone's shoulders with all the walking in the city there. And so I volunteered to take a turn to put him up on my shoulders and uh, enjoy the city a little bit as I walked and he just enjoyed the view, or so I thought he would enjoy the view. 
Come to find out, the little one was a bit afraid of heights. Now, I'm not that tall, but getting up that high, I put him on my shoulders, and he immediately went into a submission lock with his legs around my neck. Okay, right? (laughs) Okay, let's not hold that tight. And his hands wrapped around my eyes, gripping tightly like this. And okay, okay, all right, you're going to be all right. Let's not cover my eyes, you know. So I moved his hands and they immediately went to my hair, right? And so then he gripped my hair while he's up there and he was just latched onto me as tight as possible. I was like, well, we'll see how long this lasts and whether I have any hair left by the time we're done. Well, as we went, he got more comfortable up there and was able to enjoy the view, and it all went just fine. But he, being, just being up that high off the ground, it was, he was holding on for dear life, gripped by fear of being up that high. And in those moments when we feel that way, right, something happens and we're gripped by what's going on, almost frozen or stuck in the midst of that attack, that's when we turn to the Lord. There are many times we face fear in life. We can be under attack, maybe not exactly like David was in Psalm 64, but maybe you've had someone spread gossip about you. You you shared some personal information that you really didn't want going around, and all of a sudden you're hearing it from a third party or a fourth party. Wait a second, I didn't tell them about that. Maybe you've faced time when even false information about you was spread. Rumors and conversation about things you said or did that never happened. Maybe you've just been uh, under attack of someone's manipulation with their words, where they try to control you with what they say or get you to do or not do something based on their words. Maybe someone's used their words to tempt you to sin. To deceive you into thinking this is not that big of a deal. Give it a try. It's going to be all right. There are all sorts of ways that we can be under attack, so to speak, with words. In fact, it's interesting that in Ephesians chapter 6, God compares the attacks of Satan as fiery darts, kind of like the arrows mentioned here in Psalm 64. Often his attacks coming in the form of words and lies tempting us to believe what is not true about God and his universe. And so when these attacks come, we can even be gripped by fear. What's going to happen if people believe what they're saying about me? How is this going to turn out? Will justice ever be served? Maybe you've been in those moments where your heart is racing and adrenaline is pumping and you almost don't even know how to handle the energy you're feeling as you're nervous about what's going to happen. When you begin to wonder whether someone's words are going to be proved true or false. When you are frozen, when you are anxious, when you are desperate, turn to the Lord. Go to Him in prayer. Sometimes as simple as the phrase, Lord, help me. I I don't know the right next steps here. I I can't solve this. I don't know. They're they're bigger than me. And there are times in life we face our Goliaths, Goliaths, where literally the person against us is larger than us. And yet in those moments, it's so important to turn to the Lord because He's bigger than them all. And so we look to Him, we ask Him for wisdom. 
He's promised to give wisdom as we ask that whatever situation we're in, God does not hold back. He helps us. We look to His Word for direction and instruction. We ask Him to calm our fears. Maybe we rehearse His promises. We write down those truths we have from God that relate to the very fear that I'm facing. Aha, no, God is bigger than the trouble I face. He says it right here in His Word. And so we cling to those rich truths, His promises to us. And as we fix our mind on Him, as we give Him our request, the promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7 remains true, that His peace which passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when gripped by fear, turn to the Lord. But number two, we see David do something else here. He takes note of the foolishness of those who do not fear God. And we see this in verses 3 through 6. And David really here is just recounting how his enemies are acting. But, but he's noticed. He's watched them. He's seen how they're living. And he makes a conclusion in verse 6 about their foolishness. They do not fear God and they're, they're blind to it. And so in verse 6 he, he concludes that the, the thoughts and the plans of their heart and their mind run deep. Meaning they're deep-seated. They're, they're rooted down in their hearts and it's hard to get them to see that they're wrong. And that they need to fear God. Their wickedness runs deep. And so David is is noticing the foolishness of those who do not fear God. Notice what he points out for us in verses 3 and following. We already mentioned verse 3 that they're sharpening their swords. And so again, they're, they're getting ready to attack David. But the sword is their tongues. They've planned their words. They know exactly what to say to cut him down. They bend their bows. This probably refers actually to the the task of bending the bow itself to either tighten the string or restring the bow. It could refer to actually drawing the bow. Some translations say to aim here. But I think more he's preparing the bow. They're, They're planning their words. They're going over their arrows and making sure the the directional feathers in the back are all lined up appropriately. They're they're ready to shoot their bitter words at David. Bitter words refers to harsh sayings, slanderous attacks as they prepare to attack him. Verse 4 leads us to the actual attack. Their goal in making these preparations is they, they can shoot in secret. And that word shoot is our first rhyming word in the psalm. I'll try to point those out as I go. That word shoot is the first one. And they want to shoot in secret at the blameless. And the word blameless means David sees himself here as innocent, which certainly fits the idea of Absalom's betrayal. There is nothing that David had done to deserve that. And so he sees himself as blameless here. And he says, they're, they're planning their words to attack me in secret, to shoot their words and take me down. They want to do it suddenly. This is a surprise attack, an ambush so to speak. But the key is at the end of verse 4 there, with the next occurrence of a rhyming word, they do not fear. 
They, they think they've got it. They think they're fine. There's nobody watching. In fact, that's the exact mindset that they, they show in verse 5. They encourage each other. So where they should be afraid of God, they encourage one another with their words. This is that moment in a plan when somebody says, I don't know, guys, should we really do this? And everybody else in the group chimes up, oh, come on, what, are you afraid? Of course it's going to work. we got to stick with it now. We're this far into it. This is the plan. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work. We're telling you. So they encourage each other in this evil act and do not fear God. They talk about laying snares secretly there in verse 5. And then at the end of verse 5, they ask themselves this, who will see them? That Them referring to their snares, their traps. Who's going to see? That word see is another rhyming word highlights to us this thread working through this psalm. They don't fear God. They don't think anybody sees the wicked things that they're planning. (laughs) Who's going to see the traps we've laid? This is a perfectly devised plan, as they say in verse 6. We've perfected a shrewd scheme. We've devised this plan. Nobody's going to figure it out. Nobody sees what we're doing. We're going to be successful. They do not fear God as they should. Because God sees it all. God knows exactly what they're doing. And as we'll learn in the next section, God will reward them for their deeds. And so David makes his conclusion at the end of verse 6. Both the inward thoughts and the heart of man are deep. The idea of this phrase is that their wickedness, their sin problems, the, the, the planning and plotting of their mind and the desires of their hearts to do evil and to rebel against God run deep. Meaning they're not just surface level, they're not just easily stopped and thwarted and changed. They run deep all the way down to the core of their heart. This is a wise recognition from David. They suffer from self-deception and arrogance. They're blind to the fact that God is watching their every move. They've blinded themselves to the fact that God will repay them for their deeds. And their self-deception runs deep. And it's foolishness. We know it's foolishness because David contrasts it in the next section As he talks about wisdom, in verse 9, they shall wisely consider God's doing. And so we see that it's foolishness to ignore God. It's foolishness to not fear Him. There's so many times that in our arrogance and in our self-deception, we don't see the problem because our hearts are deceitful. One summer, I was uh, ministering at a camp for a week and serving as a counselor. And uh, one of the activities, this camp was kind of located uh, near some mountains. So one of the activities was going to be, we're going to take the campers on a hike in the mountains. And so in preparation for this hike, uh, we were going to load all the campers up on a, on a shuttle bus, right, and, and drive to the location. And so we start uh, directing the campers to the bus and getting them all on this bus and I'm sort of looking at the bus and looking at the line of campers and thinking to myself, boy, I don't, I don't know that we're going to get all the campers on the bus. How's this going to work out? 
And so the, the director kind of keeps filing everybody in and I'm peeking through the window and all the seats are full at this point, but he keeps filing everybody in and in they go. And so some of us on our team were, you know, sitting in a bench that was meant for two people and there were like six crammed in there, you know, and the standing room only in the bus. And, you know, there's just kids everywhere in this shuttle bus, you know, sitting on laps and crammed in here and, you know, face pressed up against the window and all of this, right? It's just packed in there. And so I kind of walked in the entrance of the bus with the camp director and I'm looking at the scene and I'm going, well, this isn't going to work. So uh, we'll have to find something else. So we had a van that we could have loaned or, you know, there are other solutions. We kind of come up with that. Okay, well, we'll have to see how we solve this one. And so I kind of went over to the director and I thought, well, what do you think? It's pretty full. We should probably find another solution. And so he pops his head around and surveys the bus and kind of looks it over and says, I think we're going to be all right. And I remember kind of doing a double take at that point. It's like, are we looking at the same scene here? I, I look at the scene and I conclude yeah, this is not going to work. He looked at the scene and thought, yep, we're going to be just fine. Well, in the end, he was right. We made it, right? We, we made it to the, the trail and we made it back again. Uh, faces crammed against the window and everything. We were all just fine. I'm not sure that was legal. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but at any rate, we survived. But it was just a funny scenario for me because we looked at the same scene and my conclusion was one thing and he saw it completely differently. Nope, we're going to be fine. What I saw as a problem, he did not see as a problem. This can happen so often in our Christian lives, especially as we look at our own hearts. You're easily self-deceived. We survey the problem, so to speak, in our lives that maybe a friend or a loved one have pointed out, and we look it over ourselves and we say, no, I think I'm going to be all right. I think I got this. It's not as bad as you think. <laughs> we self-justify. We deceive ourselves. And David's point bears repeating here that our self-deception, that wickedness runs deep and we're often blinded by our own sin. And it's a return to fear of God that solves the problem, not my own self-assessment that looks over the scene and says, yep, yep, we're going to be fine. It's foolishness not to fear God. In fact, this is the very foundation of sin, isn't it? Not to respect and fear God. This is what Satan did from the beginning. To rebel against God's rule. To say to Adam and Eve, Oh, is God's word really important? Did he really say that? There's another way. Let me tell you. No fear of God. We have to admit that we also function this way at times. It's the core of our sin nature. We act foolishly. We ignore God rather than fearing Him. And when we see this foolishness in others who are maybe shooting against us, we must pause and search it out in our own hearts. Often, it's frustration over the attacks of others that God might use to show where I'm kind of doing the same thing to someone else in my own life. Very easily self-deceived. And when we're under attack, it's a temptation to become pretty self-righteous. Well, clearly they're the problem. <laughs> I've looked it over and I think we're going to be fine. <laughs> but it's foolishness. 
It's not my assessment or their assessment that matters. It's God's assessment. We fear Him. And anything else, fear of others, even fearing my own assessment more than God's, is foolishness. And so we must beware of the ways that we do these things, the way we use our words to get what we want. We throw superlatives into our conversation to try to make our point. You always do this. I never do that. No one cares about me. Everyone is against me. But then when we pause to reflect, having used those words, I think, well, wait a second, is that actually true? It's not. We deflect blame. You made me upset. I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't. Or like Adam in the garden, God, it's the woman you gave me. We hear it in Adam and it sounds like foolishness. But when we do it, we're not so quick to see it. So the reminder of David here is that we have to search out the foolishness in our own hearts as well. It runs deep and we're easily self-deceived and it's foolish of us not to fear God. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10 remind us of this human problem. If you want to look at those verses with me briefly, they're important verses in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Here we read this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we could leave the question lingering there just to prove to all of us that We don't have the capacity to fully see the deception in our own hearts, but there's hope in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. There is a God who sees all things in our hearts. And not only does he see it all, he's the judge, as verse 10 reminds us, who will repay each one according to his deeds. And so, friends, it's foolishness to think we can operate without God seeing everything. We must fear And so, as we think about this, we notice the foolishness of those who do not fear God, and we move, number three today, to consider God's retribution and to fear Him. Notice what happens in verses 7 through 9 as David unfolds God's actions here. There's a strong transition in verse 7. David uses the words, but God number of places in Scripture where that, that kind of turn really just changes the landscape of the passage, and so too here. David says, but God. So the enemies, they don't fear God. They don't think they're being seen by Him. They're attacking David, but God. What does God do? God shall shoot at them with an arrow. There another is another one of our rhyming words. God shoots at them. So when it was at first the enemies shooting at David, God, David sees that God is the one who has the big bow. <laughs> 
And he's ready to take down those who do injustice. And so God shoots his arrow. God's arrow is obviously not bitter words. God's arrow is the truth. That no matter what people say, God speaks what is right. And so God is prepared to wound these enemies. It's interesting, there's another repeated word there in verse 7. Suddenly, they shall be wounded. Here are these ones who thought they were working in secret. And if you remember, back in that section, they said that their attack would happen suddenly. It's there in verse 4. But in reality, it's God whose justice comes suddenly. God who shoots his own bow and arrow at the wicked ones and takes them down when they least expect it. Verse 8, they will be made to stumble over their own tongue. So here their words come up again, and God will use their own words to cause them to stumble. What they've said will come back to bite them, as the saying goes. This is the principle of Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Now, this doesn't always happen in life as much as we might wish it did. (laughs) But we know, with a God who sees all things and repays to each one according to his works, that indeed it will happen at the end of time. There's nothing he misses. There's nothing that goes unrewarded. And so, in the end of verse 8, God has displayed His power. The people have seen His massive bow and His arrow of truth firing down on the wicked. And they stumble and fall. In fact, even their schemes turn back on them. It's as if they were trapped in the very snares that they had laid. And the wicked have now fallen. And in response to the end of verse 8, it says that all who see them shall flee away. God's justice is visible. Now, some of your translations may translate the last part of that phrase. All who see them, uh, uh, it may say, shall shake, in, uh, shall shake their heads in scorn. The word is just literally to shake. I think it means to shake in fear. They'll see the justice of God and they'll shake in fear at His power, at His justice. That seems to make sense, especially in light of verse 9, where we have another rhyming word. All men shall fear. They shall declare the work of God. They saw God have victory over the wicked. And they declare what God has doing. And here we have wisdom instead of foolishness. They wisely consider His works. They wisely consider His doing. Our gaze has been lifted up from the enemies. And now we're looking at God with His bow and arrow of truth and justice. And He's conquered the wicked. And all who see His justice are now afraid. There's one to whom we're accountable. Who's greater than us. We should think seriously about our actions. Fear of God is to respect Him, to worship Him, to be in awe of Him, to see Him as larger than anything else in this life. And so that our fears begin to shrink in size as we see what our God is like. It's important that we fear God because fearing people leads to a difficult end. 
There's an old fable attributed to Aesop that reminds us of this. Maybe you've heard this one when you were a, a child. This is the one about the father and his son taking the donkey to market. A man and his son were once taking their donkey to market. As they were walking along by its side, a countryman passed them and said, You fools, what is a donkey but to ride on? So the man put the boy on the donkey and they went their way. But soon they passed a group of men, one of whom said, See that lazy youngster? He lets his father walk while he rides. So the man ordered his boy to get off and got on himself. But they hadn't gone far when they passed two young women, one of whom said to the other, shame on that lazy lout to let his poor little son trudge along. Well, the man didn't know what to do, but at last he took his boy up before him on the donkey. By this time, they had come to the town and the passers-by began to jeer and point at them. The man stopped and asked what they were scoffing at. The men said, aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey of yours and your hulking son? The man and the boy both got off and tried to think what to do. They thought and they thought, till at last they cut down a pole, tied the donkey's feet to it, and raised the pole and the donkey to their shoulders. They went along amid the laughter of all who met them till they came to Market Bridge." When the donkey, getting one of his feet loose, kicked out and caused the boy to drop his end of the pole, in the struggle the donkey fell over the bridge and his four feet being tied together, the donkey was drowned. That will teach you, said an old man who had followed them, please all and you will please none. We could correct Aesop's fable a little bit and just say, please all. One, we fear the Lord alone. We seek to please Him alone. He's the one to whom we look. We consider His retribution, His power, His justice, His truth, and in light of His size, we say, oh, it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I just want to please Him. He's the one that matters. He rules over all. He is the righteous judge, and He repays each one according to His works. He sees all things. This is both comforting and convicting at the same time. On the one hand, it's comforting because people seem to get away with things all the time. remember being in an airport, sitting, waiting for my plane, and kind of watching the snack shop nearby, and I watched as somebody walked into the store, grabbed their item, and walked back out of the store again. They just stole that item. They just got away with shoplifting, you know, and they were, they were off. They disappeared. They were gone. They did it. Did anyone see? Are they ever going to be caught? God knows. He sees all things. At the same time, this is convicting because He sees my heart. He knows my thoughts. He knows the truth about everything I've ever said or done, even before I have a chance to self-justify. Well, I have a right to be angry, yet God knows that I don't. Well, their sin is a bigger deal, yet God knows that it isn't. Well, I just wanted a good thing, yet God knows that I let that good thing rule me and even worshipped it. 
God sees all things. And so David reminds us here to consider God's works, to consider God's justice. When we talk with one another to speak of His works of justice, as we see them in Scripture, as we see them in our lives, as we look forward to them in the future, and we meditate on God's justice so that our fear is always of the Lord and not of people around us. Because God sees all things, we fear Him. We make it our aim to please Him. We don't have to imagine God upset with us all the time. That's not what fearing God means. We're not sitting in terror of what God's going to do to me if I say this or do this. No, no. we know that in Christ we are loved at all times by God. And yet, at the same time, we must remember God's power and justice and holiness and authority in our lives. And in awe and respect for who He is and what He's done for me. We say in response to him, Lord, I want to please you. You're the one that matters in my life. Every choice I make, every word I say, may it be for your glory. And so this leads us then to verse 10. For David makes his conclusion. And here we see that if you are right with God, rejoice. David speaks here in verse 10 of the righteous, and then in the next phrase, the upright in heart. He's referring to, well, I think, himself. And he's not saying that he's never sinned. He's just saying that he's confident he's right with God. He's confessed his sin. He's partaken of the prescribed sacrifices as a part of the Mosaic Covenant, the loving relationship between God and His people Israel. And so David believes that his sacrifices have covered his transgressions and so that he can have confidence that he's right before God, unlike the wicked who are ignoring God. And so David, looking at his own relationship with God, can say, I will be glad in the Lord And trust in Him. And even glory in the Lord in the midst of this attack. So David knew his trespasses were covered. His sins were forgiven. And so he rejoiced in his God. This leads us to an important question as we close this sermon. We can rejoice in the Lord if we're right with God. Are you right with God? If you were to stand before the judge of the universe today and he were to look at your life, what would his assessment be? The the one who sees all things and knows all things. Only those with perfect righteousness enter his kingdom. Would you attain to that perfect righteousness? As the judge who has seen every thought and action of your life, as he scans your history as you stand before him, would he find anything short of perfect righteousness? Yes, he would. There's not a one of us who can stand before the judge of the universe successfully. And God knew that. He knows our sin (laughs) 
And I'm so thankful that God is not only just and righteous, but at the same time, He is loving and merciful and sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of a people among whom none has perfect righteousness. He sent Jesus to live a sinless life. Jesus, His Son, to die in our place, to take our sins upon Himself. And the Bible's clear that when we trust in Jesus as Savior, believing that He died and rose again in my place, then not only are my sins washed away, but I have more than just a blank slate before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that I am made the righteousness of God in Him. So that when I stand before God on that day and He assesses whether there's perfect righteousness here, Jesus completely covers me and God looks on His Son as He gazes at me and says, yep, you've got the righteousness of God by faith. Enter my kingdom. Friend, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The only way to stand before the righteous judge of the universe To have Jesus as your Savior. To be found in Him as you stand before God. This is true salvation. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, if you are hidden in Christ, then God sees you in His Son at all times with love and mercy. In fact, Romans 8, 32 and following reminds us of the many joys that this brings to the Christian life to be found in Christ. Think of the confidence that this brings, that we could actually be glad because we are in Christ. He says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now Paul sounds like David, doesn't he? He looks at his enemies around him and he says, "Ah, what can man do to me? God is for me because I'm in Christ. I've trusted in Him as my Savior. He goes on in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? The Gospel proves God's provision that when I was still a sinner, God sent His Son to die for me. So if He'll do that for me, a sinner, how much more will God do for me, hidden in Christ, His Son? He'll give me all good things. He goes on in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's God who declares us righteous. So who cares what they have to say about me? Who cares what darts and arrows my enemies might bring against me in slander as long as God sees me in Christ I'm okay. It's God who justifies. He goes on. Verse 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The very one who died for me, cleansed my sins, rose from the grave, gave me his righteousness, now stands before the Father's throne and pleads my case. Who is there to condemn me? Not even Satan can stand up to the righteous advocacy of Christ before the Father's throne. And so he concludes in verses 35 and following that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
And he begins to make this long list in 35 and following, even even persecution or or famine or peril or sword, the, the sharpened sword we heard of in Psalm 64. Not even that can separate us from the love of Christ. And he goes on in 37 and 38 and 39 and concludes finally that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Friends, this is our confidence in God. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you are secure. You do not need to be shaken by hurtful words. You can forgive others for their sin rather than punishing them. You can help others rather than judge them. You can move toward others with compassion rather than anger. You can be selfless because you're secure in Christ. You don't need to fear. You don't need to have anxiety. You don't need to make desperations for control of your situation because you are loved in Christ. And nothing can change that. And so if you're right with God, be glad. You may face trouble. You can't separate you from God's love. Look to the Lord. When threatened by enemy attacks, lift your gaze to the God who is judge and ruler of the universe and sent His Son to save you and rest in what He has done. Fear Him and Him alone. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Psalm 64. We thank you for David's turning to you in the midst of his fear. And as we close, I pray for any here today that are facing fear in their lives. May we lift our gaze to you and see that you are indeed the righteous judge of the earth. Lord, use that truth, your justice, to draw our hearts to the crucial question, am I right with you today? Is my standing before you based on the Lord Jesus Christ or am I trying to earn your favor? May those that do not have Christ as their Savior today come to Him by faith and find that He casts none out but receives all who would trust in Him. May we who have trusted in Christ find security in your love and fear you alone as we face the challenges of this life. We thank you for your love in Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.